So I'm not sure how long this lecture is going to be. We could be finished in 10 minutes, though I doubt that. Um, and if we're not finished at the end of the 50, um, there are some things that I've reserved for the end of the lecture that I definitely do want to get said. I don't know if you've noticed there are times when uh, the last point or two that I appeared to have been preparing to make never did get made, uh, but in this case I want to make sure that they are made, so that if I don't finish today uh, or if I still have a point or two to make, I'll definitely be taking up those points at the beginning of Thursday's lecture. All right, now. Um, the African American uh, tradition of literary production is rich and long standing. As Henry Louis Gates tells you, uh, the first uh, really rather important poet in the tradition, Phyllis Wheatley, is uh, a col an American colonial writer. Uh, the flourishing of the slave narrative form begins in the 18th century, continues into the 19th. Uh, in the 19th century witnesses uh, extraordinary works of fiction, and in the 20th century, of course, most conspicuously in the Harlem Renaissance, but throughout the century uh, there has been uh, extraordinary work uh, done in the African American literary tradition. It's a very rich tradition, in other words, uh, somewhat in contrast with the very rich but also very recent tradition of African American literary theory and criticism. It's possible to argue that the development of theory and criticism in this tradition was somewhat balked by a preliminary way in which it found itself at odds with itself. Um, black criticism and black feminist criticism from the beginning saw that they didn't have quite the same agenda. This is something that can resonate perhaps later in this lecture when we move to other topics. Uh, but in the meantime, critics like Barbara Christian, Barbara Smith, Deborah McDowell, Hazel Carby, Bell Hooks um, were in their variety of ways uh, working with emphases that uh, other uh, and uh, sort of typically male uh, African American critics uh, weren't quite comfortable with. And so while uh, work, especially beginning in the 80s, uh, proliferated, there was, as I say, a kind of internal divide which has been a complex matter to negotiate and which uh, is, I think, now largely uh, sort of a detente has been achieved uh, and uh, African American literary theory is moving forward unfettered any longer by these concerns or at least uh, by any excess of these concerns. But in the meantime, that may partly account for a certain delay in the emergence of theory and criticism uh, given the uh, uh, sort of long-standing richness of the literary tradition. Now, the role of Henry Louis Gates in uh, African American criticism is, it seems to me, uh, exemplary, although there are some rather harsh moments in this essay, moments that I, that I, I, I wish to take up, uh, that would suggest uh, an element of, what shall I say, extremism or overkill uh, in uh, Gates's thinking. This is actually not at all the persona uh, that he has uh, projected. 
Uh, and indeed, um, what's extraordinary about Gates, whose, whose uh, uh, administrative power, whose, whose abilities as a program builder, as we say, are remarkable, after he left Yale to go to Harvard he was able to gather to Harvard Anthony Appiah, Cornell West, and others uh, who have since departed from Harvard, um, but Gates is in a way an empire unto himself. And uh, he, he has been an extraordinary figure. The earliest work, which is actually sort of among the earliest work, is, is, is what you've been reading for today, uh, established his reputation together with um, a, his discovery of, not so much discovery of, but authentication of a manuscript by Harriet Wilson, which he published uh, an important contribution uh, to 19th century, uh, uh, our, our knowledge of 19th century African American literature. Uh, in any case, uh, what happened then was that Gates, who, who by some miracle or, or other, he was a perfectly good writer in the first place, but gradually became a marvelous writer, began uh, writing for the New Yorker. And during this phase of his, uh, of his career, when among other things he produced a, a, a remarkable autobiography about growing up in West Virginia, um, during this phase uh, Gates really became a spokesperson for a detente among uh, uh, races and racial factions. In other words, uh, he was um, a voice of moderation without incurring any imputation of Uncle Thomism or anything of the sort. Uh, his, very, his sheer urbanity as the remarkable writer that he is, uh, in those years uh, when he wrote under Tina Brown uh, for The New Yorker, uh, was just a remarkable achievement, and his career uh, is, still, is, is still going strong. Now, for Gates, as for Elaine Showalter last week, and for Wolfe before her, uh, the problems surrounding the, the concept of identity persist. Identity, uh, which of course is um, uh, an important anchor for the thinking of people who feel the need for voices, for a place uh, in the literary and cultural horizon, is nevertheless, at least potentially, as we've begun to notice already, uh, a kind of quicksand. Um, the problem that there are two problems really that dog uh, I, the, the issue of identity. One of them is the problem of essentializing, which I'll take up now, and then as I'll take it up next, also the problem of what might be called the identity cue. Uh, in other words, I am a um, a lower class uh, black uh, lesbian feminist whose uh, whose uh, 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 nation is Palestine. Uh, needless to say, I have a variety of identity options to choose from, uh, but the result is the result is I've got to figure out which of them has priority. In other words, which of those identities do I suppose is has at the underlying uh, integrity and essence, essentiality, uh, that can motivate, um, as it were, the characteristics of my other identities, uh, at which are therefore somehow or another placed uh, further down the queue. Uh, so this uh, is, a, is, is a topic that I'll come back to in a minute. But in the meantime, the problem of 
essentializing, as we say, uh, as we call it. Um, for example, uh, uh, as Gates describes it on page 1893 in the right hand column, where he's very clear on the dangers of ascribing, whether positively or negatively, attributes to any group that is constituted as or thought of, because of course the notion of race and whether there is race is in itself, according to Gates, problematic, um, the problem of ascribing attributes, uh, even honorifically, uh, to a race is as he describes it on page 1893. <clears throat> the, sen the sense of difference defined in popular usages uh, finally, finally my voice is changing. Uh, the, sen <laughs> the, the sense of difference defined in popular usages of the term race has been used both to describe and inscribe differences of language, belief system, artistic tradition, gene pool, and all sorts of supposedly natural attributes such as rhythm, athletic ability, cerebration, usury, and fidelity. In other words, obviously apportioning out stereotypes to the various uh, groups that may uh, come forward as candidates to be races uh, and pointing out that all of these stereotypes do nobody very much good. Um, so the problem of essentializing, which, which undergirds the wish to make manifest the existence of race, because, because think about it. Um, on the other hand, Gates seems to be divided in the beginning of his, of his essay between a certain candor about race, as in the work of Hippolyte Ten that he describes, in which race, uh, milieu, uh, and cultural moment are considered the key determining issues of any kind of artistic or cultural production. He says, well, at least race is being talked about while at the same time obviously wincing away from the implications of race and from the belief that there is such a thing as race, which goes all the way back to Montesquieu and others uh, in ten. Nevertheless, he's rather cheerful about the fact that at least race is being discussed, unlike the 20th century when the whole thing is swept under the rug uh, and a kind of ersatz and hypocritical politeness prevents anybody from talking about such categories at all uh, and gives rise to the idea that we all exist in the same great tradition uh, that work either belongs to that tradition or if it for some reason seems egregious or outside the tradition, it just can be shoved aside and neglected. That's the supposition of the 20th century when folks don't talk about race. And so, you know, the, the very question whether it is an issue uh, is part of this problem uh, that is dogged uh, by the more complicated uh, issue of essentializing. For example, suppose, as and of course you've been reading about this in, in, in Showalter as well, suppose uh, you ascribe positive value to what another person might call a stereotype. This is what uh, the, uh, the, the important uh, francophone African poet Sangar does, uh, as Gates says at the top of page 1901, the right-hand column. Gates says, when we attempt to appropriate by inversion race as a term for an essence, as did the negritude 
movement, for example, we feel therefore we are, as Sangor argued of the African, we yield too much, such as the basis of a shared humanity. Such gestures, as Anthony Appiah has observed, are futile and dangerous because of their further inscription of new and bizarre stereotypes. So you can see there are a lot of landmines to be avoided in negotiating the discourse of race, uh, and certainly, uh, certainly Gates is aware of them. Now there's also the problem, as I say, of the identity cue, and Gates himself may have a little difficulty with this, at least from time to time, because, as I said at the beginning, he does have this sort of uneasy detente with feminism in the African-American uh, critical tradition uh, still to work within. And so, for example, on page 1894, um, a somewhat problematic passage in which the identity cue uh, seems to be at issue, about a third of the way down the left-hand column. He says, the sanction of biology contained in sexual difference, simply put, does not and can never obtain when one is speaking of racial difference. Yet we carelessly use language in such a way as to will this sense of natural difference into our formulations. So what he's saying is, in biological terms there's definitely a difference between the sexes, but in biological terms uh, there is not necessarily a difference among uh, the uh, so-called primary races. So that, so that, at least when one speaks of women and men in the feminist tradition, one has to come face to face with, it, with the problem of actual difference. Whereas when one speaks of black and white in the traditions of discourse about race, one isn't actually talking about a genuine difference at all. And, there, and, and, and that therefore uh, the, uh, the discourse with the greater integrity of the two is the one which is about differences that are absolutely ephemeral as opposed to the one which is about differences which whatever one thinks of them and whatever one wants to make out of them are nevertheless essential. Now, plainly, when we go back to feminist criticism, particularly the, the gender theory of Judith Butler, we'll see, of course, that the whole question of the biological basis of sex, uh, the biological uh, difference between the sexes uh, which essentializes uh, what we will be wanting to talk about, is of course something that is profoundly in question, and not just because of so-called transgender issues, but also at the same time uh, because of the way in which uh, our very sexual identity is something which, according to Butler, we construct. And so there is um, a, an insistence here on biological difference between these two forms of discussing identity, which may uh, or may not um, uh, seem to us to be problematic. Now I think this is the point at which uh, we can see the importance 
of the extraordinary essay that I've also asked you to read by Toni Morrison. You know her best, of course, as a novelist, but she's also a distinguished critic, as she has been uh, a distinguished editor uh, of, 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 of other important work. Um, and here uh, it seems to me that her reflections in some ways give us a sideways exit from the predicaments that I've been talking about, the problem of, of essentialism, the problem of the identity cue. Because what Morrison wants to say, and I think she borrows uh, here particularly from the famous discussion of the master-slave dialectic in Hegel's Phenomenology of Mind, what Morrison wants to say is that, it's not, is that identity isn't so much a question of what something is, but rather a question of what it is not. She says, it's not that we should be so much preoccupied with what it is to be black, but rather as we think about the way in which uh, being black is inscribed within the white tradition, as we think about that, we need to think about what white is not. At, about, in other words, as she says repeatedly, about black as absence, as negation, as negativity, and that we and we have to understand the absolute. And this is where uh, this is where she derives her argument from the master-slave dialectic. Uh, the absolute necessity in the construction of white identity for there to be as an absence, as a lack uh, over against white identity, the existence of the African American, and more particularly for the better part of the American cultural tradition of the slave. Uh, let me quote then uh, uh, from her essay on page 1795, left-hand column, where she says, Construction of black, this is third of the way down, construction of blackness and enslavement could be found not only the not in that construction of blackness and enslavement could be found not only the not free, but also the projection of the not me. The result was a playground for the imagination. What rose up out of collective needs to allay internal fears and rationalize external exploitation was an Africanism, a fabricated brew of darkness, otherness, alarm, and desire that is uniquely American. And then she points out that although her subject is the American tradition, there also exists a European Africanism with its counterpart in its own colonial literature. Um, to reinforce this, she takes a remarkable example which must have reminded you, those of, those of you who know Faulkner, of Thomas Sutpen, at least reminded, reminded you in some ways of Thomas Sutpen, of this character Dunbar, uh, who actually rose up not so much out of the swamp as out of the Scottish Enlightenment, uh, and came to the United States and, according to Bernard Balin, the historian from whom she takes this information, um, uh, who be became a transformed character. Um, I won't quote to you the long passage from Balin's text, which makes what uh, Morrison wants to take from it clear, but rather from what Morrison summarizes of it uh, on page 1796, the top of the right-hand column. I take, says Morrison, William Dunbar to be a succinct portrait 
of the process by which the American as new, white, and male was constituted. It is a formation that has several attractive consequences, all of which are referred to in Balin's summation of Dunbar's character and located in how Dunbar feels within himself a power, a sense of freedom he had not known before. This is uncannily parallel, by the way, to the rationalization for slaves in Greek culture. The Greeks always said that the reason they had slaves was so they could be free. In other words, uh, so that the home or ruling population could, was liberated, uh, in the case of the Greeks, from uh, performing the daily necessities of, of, uh, that are life-sustaining and keep us going. Uh, in other words, to be free, uh, according to the citizen of the Greek polis, is to be free from work. Now, in a certain way, this is still a rationalization that Toni Morrison sees in uh, the American slave-owning tradition, but it's not so much in the case of this Dunbar of freedom from work, it's, it's the case of a more broad and insidious idea of freedom, freedom from responsibility, freedom from the need uh, to acknowledge otherness as human, freedom, in other words, from the sorts of constraint imposed by old world civility uh, in Scotland and in London, uh, freedom on this frontier, in this wilderness, in this swamp, simply to be whatever one wants to be. And that freedom is uh, achieved on the backs of the black slave. It is. Uh, in some ways similar, as I say, to the rationalization for, for slavery in Greece, but it is in a way more insidious uh, and certainly more, uh, in the terms that Morrison's giving it to us in, more dialectical. That is to say, it is the, the, the question whether a person could become white without the availability of a black absence of, a, of, of, that which, of, of that which can be oppressed like a kind of, like, like, like a kind of uh, spring uh, for the jack-in-the-box, which allows the white jack-in-the-box to leap out of the box uh, because of that which is suppressed down below. All of that uh, is part of Toni Morrison's concern. And it colors her, well, certainly controversial, uh, reading of Huckleberry Finn, which nevertheless it seems to me uh, has a, a, a quite profound interest. Now, uh, my own first instinct when, when people single out Huckleberry Finn <laughs> is to wince away because uh, it's an extraordinary novel. Um, the controversy about it uh, in the school districts, which made it um, a banished book, uh, had mainly to do with the N-word, uh, to which we'll return, the question, who has the right to use the N-word, which is not an easy question to answer, uh, as we'll see. Um, but that controversy, while it had uh, an authentic basis, uh, seemed, was nevertheless, certainly in literary terms and in terms of the imagination, uh, perhaps, um, perhaps rather limited. Uh, Morrison gives rise to another equally and intensely critical way of thinking about Huckleberry Finn. She argues that to liberate Jim 
which of course is the tremendous failure at the end of the novel, uh, a failure of imagination on the part of Tom Sawyer, uh, a failure of uh, will or independence of mind on the part of Huck himself, uh, that the failure to liberate Jim, which would have been the easiest thing in the world, all they had to do was point, was point out the right fork in the river, is, a, is an absolute necessity for the ongoing self-definition of whiteness as it's available both to Tom and to Huck and after all by implication to Mark Twain himself. He couldn't figure out how to end the novel, he wrote it, uh, it lay on his desk for a long time because he just couldn't figure out what to do with it, and he finally comes up with this, uh, as we all agree, appalling ending. Toni Morrison says it's the only ending available. It's the only ending available because in ways that the, uh, as, she, as she sees it, sentimentality of the novel, the sentimentality of the relationship between Huck and uh, uh, Jim which is so strong uh, that it caused another critic named Leslie Fiedler to talk about a, a, a homoerotic relation between them, the, the, the title of Fiedler's famous essay is Come Up on Raff, Huck Honey, uh, you know, with all, with, with, with all that uh, in the background, uh, Toni Morrison says the basic structure of consciousness in Twain's novel is obscured, a basic structure which makes it absolutely imperative that Jim not be freed. If Jim is freed, then there is no other over against which whiteness can define itself. That's the way in which she makes use of the general argument about the traditions of American literature and culture uh, in applying it to Huckleberry Finn. All right, let's go back to uh, Skip Gates. Oh, Henry Louis Gates. Sorry, <laughs> another person who was at Yale and whom I knew very well. Uh, I actually had a little bit to do with the origin of the notion of the signifying monkey. Uh, I'll come back to that later. Barbara Johnson, also now at Harvard, um, and I um, had a lot of conversations with Skip at that period uh, about this. And um, so it's not that I feel proprietary; it's Skip's idea. Um, but I, you know, I was in on that, um, and so uh, and and so. Um, I, you know, it's not just name dropping. I get to I get to call him by what his friends call him. So so in any case, it's it is. However, I'll try to remember to say Henry Louis Gates. Um, and uh, in any case, to return to him, um, I want to talk a little bit about simply in b before moving on to this to this crucial central issue. I want to talk a little bit uh, simply about his understanding and the, other the understanding of other African American tradition uh, critics, both of the critical tradition and of the literary tradition. First of all, the grasp of the critical tradition as basically a two-step or two-part progression is something that he shares with Elaine Showalter from last time. You remember Showalter says that the important movement of um, of feminist interventions in literary criticism begins with the moment that she calls feminist, that is to say the moment of Kate Millett uh, and other authors who talk about the degradation uh, and unfair treatment of women in male books. And then what Showalter prefers and supposes to have, super, to have, to have uh, 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 supervened uh, and to have become more important 
gynocritical uh, criticism, which is women's appropriation of literary traditions for themselves, uh, the, uh, the archival work uh, that makes the canon of women's literature not just uh, leaping from great name to great name, but an actual unfolding and continuous development from decade to decade, as Showalter puts it. Um, now, Gates on page 1896, uh, the right hand margin, uh, sees it in much the same way uh, for the development of African American criticism. You can do two things, basically, says Gates. He doesn't put them chronologically, but you could see, you could, you could map onto what he's saying here the same chronological sequence. He says, what I mean by citing these two overworked terms, he's talking about the other in particular, uh, is precisely this, how blacks are figures in literature, that is to say how they're represented in literature, demeaningly, even perhaps honorifically, how blacks are figured in literature, and also how blacks figure, as it were, literature of their own making. You can see, in other words, the same movement in his thinking about these issues. Now, as Showalter argued, the question of the literary tradition is more complicated. It has more steps. The, in other words, the powers of self-expression available to women from the beginning of their uh, creative expression um, pass through more than just two stages. And the same thing is true of African American literature. Now, I think that uh, Gates simply takes for granted as an implicit premise uh, the work that was done the year before he published uh, this essay in Critical Inquiry uh, by another colleague of ours here at Yale, who died tragically not too long thereafter, named Michael Cook, who in 1984 wrote a book called African American Literature in the Twentieth Century, The Achievement of Intimacy. And Cook argued in his book that the history of Af African American literature passes essentially through four stages. It begins with what Cook calls self-veiling, uh, the period, in other words, in which people attempting for the first time uh, uh, to write, and of course Gates talks about the way in which uh, writing is really writing oneself into the human community uh, for black people, the people who first attempted to write used white models. Phyllis Wheatley, the poet whom Gates talks about, uh, a remarkable poet and a very interesting one, nevertheless wrote uh, in the manner of Alexander Pope, so much so that a great deal of her work is almost impossible, which is of course you know, a point of praise, almost impossible to distinguish from that of Alex Alexander Pope. So she is an instance of the first phase uh, uh, which, which Cook calls self-veiling. Second phase, which Cook calls solitude, involves continuing to use white models, a white prose style, uh, a way of, uh, of narrating um, which is obviously derived uh, from uh, white teachers and white models, but which nevertheless involves as its central theme self-definition. Here uh, you might want to think of Douglas uh, and of slave narratives in general. Where the, emphasis, uh, where the emphasis is on being taught by white people, but nevertheless uh, the tension which, never, which exists uh, and which founds uh, and governs the possibility of self-liberation and self-freedom. In other words, uh, the slave narrative 
uh, as an ongoing form, uh, partakes of uh, this second phase in the development of African American literature as Cook understands it. Thirdly, there's what Cook calls kinship. Uh, a literature in which African Americans reach out to each other, identify themselves as a community and not as individuals struggling to be free, but rather as a community, uh, and Cook identifies this phase with the experimentation with dialect uh, and, uh, the, uh, and a way of, 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 of narrating and poetizing uh, which, is, which, which, which involves a self-conscious uh, uh, insistence on verbal and linguistic uh, difference. You can think of many of the poems, for example, of Langston Hughes in this regard, and of a great deal else that goes on in the Harlem Renaissance. So that's the third phase, kinship. And then the last phase, and, and what I'm going to want to say is that Gates doesn't think we've reached this. Uh, in other words, the point of disagreement between Cook and Gates is precisely about this. The last phase, which Cook calls intimacy, is the freedom to expropriate any and all models, not, in other words, to insist necessarily on one's own, uh, uh, on, on one's own creative paradigms. Uh, as a racial tradition uh, to expropriate anything that comes ready to hand. Ellison's Invisible Man, for example, is a masterpiece of high modernism. Uh, it, 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 it takes freely, in other words, from whatever traditions see, come, come to hand uh, and are most readily available for the kind of work that Ellison wants to do. Uh, Cook identifies this, perhaps rather optimistically, with what he calls intimacy, in other words, a merger, a finally achieved merger of traditions such that, and this is plainly the ideal of Virginia Woolf as well, such that one, such that one no longer has to write as a spokesperson. One no longer needs to be concerned uh, for thematizing uh, the kinds of identity that out of which one writing, one's writing has arisen. One can write just anything one wants to. Uh, in other words, a, the utopian vision of no matter who I am, uh, having access to absolutely any forms uh, and themes uh, I care to work with. That is the vision of Michael Cook, which Gates, um, I think, unfortunately, rightly feels that we haven't uh, quite arrived at. And that's why um, I deliberately used the word expropriate in talking about Cook's fourth phase. If I use models other than models made available by my own tradition, I'm not just kind of pulling them out of the air. I'm using them with a calculated purpose. I always have something in mind in choosing the model that I choose. Uh, we're, we're, not, you know, we're not really quite at intimacy because self-definition is still at issue. You can talk about the high modernism of the invisible man all you like, but think of what the invisible man is about. <laughs> the invisible man is still about what it means to be black. You know what is it? So what is passing? Uh, what does it? What does it mean? In other words, uh, to have um, this racial identity, so that yeah, traditions, uh, manners, styles have been have been expropriated, but at the same time, the business 
of writing as an African American continues. And it is as much, after all, a question of self-definition uh, as it has been hitherto. So that, as, as Gates sees it, uh, is, is, continues to be the issue. We use other models. We need to make them our own. Otherwise, we're just colonized by them, and after all, we're back in phase one, right? We're back in self-veiling because, after all, Phyllis Wheatley used other models. Phyllis, Re Phyllis Wheatley actually aspired to the idea that she was just a poet. She could write about anything she wanted to write about. The Tears of Niobe and the painting by Richard Wilson, whatever it might be, she could write about it uh, because um, she was just a poet. That was her great aspiration, was to be, was, was to be received not as uh, you know, that amazing thing, uh, a young black slave woman who could write. She wasn't interested in that. She wanted to be a poet. And so in a certain sense you can see the problem. If intimacy is achieved in the fourth phase, fourth phase well then that's finally just the realization of what Phyllis Wheatley wanted in the first phase. <laughs> and uh, we have to admit, uh, for all of the complicated reasons that these critics go into, that this is not a moment which can be said yet to have been achieved. Okay, now this brings us to Gates's key concept. What does it mean and what is the advantage of ex to, to expropriate uh, uh, other people's traditions? more particularly uh, the white tradition. And here uh, Gates is, after all, thinking primarily about criticism. How can we do theory and criticism in the white man's language? How can we appropriate, expropriate for ourselves the white man's language? And the necessity of bending language to one's own purposes is what is emphasized in the remarkable epigraph on page 1891 that Gates takes from Bakhtin. Uh, this is, it seems to me, as central a passage in Bakhtin, by the way, as anything that we studied when we were actually reading Bakhtin, uh, and I'd like you to make note of it uh, because I think it really can illuminate a great deal uh, that's going on in Bakhtin that we didn't uh, perhaps fully articulate at the time. This is what Bakhtin says. Language for the individual consciousness lies on the borderline between oneself and the other. The word in language is half someone else's. To become one's own, only when the, it becomes one's own, only when the speaker populates it with his own intention, his own accent. And you can, you can hear Gates wanting to emphasize that word accent, his own accent, when he appropriates the word, adapting it to his own semantic and expressive intention. Prior to this moment of appropriation, the word does not exist in a neutral and impersonal language. It is not, after all, out of a dictionary that the speaker gets his words. You know, how true, how true. It is not, after all, out of a dictionary that the speaker gets his words, but rather it exists in other people's mouths, in other people's contexts, 
serving other people's intentions. It is from there that one must take the word and make it one's own. Now, actually, uh, during the course of his essay, uh, 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 Gates echoes this sentiment of uh, Bakhtin by quoting Derrida at the very top of the right-hand column on page 1901, where he says, uh, we must master, as Derrida wrote, how to speak the other's language without renouncing our own. Now, how do you do this? What is, how, how do you set about taking the language you are given? And this isn't, of course, just a question of the difference between the races. It's a question of all of us in relation to each other. As Bakhtin uh, says in what you have already read, uh, most of the time we're speaking other people's languages. Um, our, it, it is rare indeed that we can say, uh, feeling very much like creative writers when we do so, that we've somehow wrenched other people's language out of its conventional usages and made it our own, slightly rewritten it so that it is truly our own. So uh, more broadly speaking, this is the challenge that faces uh, a theoretical tradition or a theoretical enterprise, I should say, that doesn't want to be just derivative uh, from what other folks have already said. The word, the concept that Gates brings to bear on this, because after all he recognizes, as does Showalter too, that the notion of the sign is probably the cornerstone of white male literary theory. He recognizes that in order to perform this expropriative act, he's got to do something with the notion of the sign. And so he talks about the way in which one can signify on something. He introduces it very quietly uh, on page 1900. Uh, the right-hand column, just seemingly in passing, since top of the, near the top of the right-hand column, since writing according to Hume was the ultimate sign of difference between animal and human, these writers implicitly were signifying upon the figure of the chain itself. Notice the accent. You don't necessarily pronounce the G. They were signifying on the chain. And of course the great chain of being, which is hierarchical, is very different from the vertical chain of the chain gang, isn't it? It's very, difficult. it's very different from the chain that holds slaves together. That's part of what it means to signify on something. The signifier, at least allegedly, the signifier in the white male uh, theoretical tradition is just a kind of placeholder in a play of linguistic differences. The question of the underlying sociological and cultural basis of this play and of the way in which this play takes shape isn't taken into account, again, allegedly, because, well, you know, in ways that you can probably grasp from what we've said all along, this is slightly to oversimplify, but this is the position taken up. Uh, and in any case, you therefore need to take the signifier and signify on it. Well, what is it to signify on something? This is an expression that Gates takes from the trickster tradition, the tradition of African storytelling in which the weaker is also the smarter, 
And the monkey, or Ananki the spider, some of you may remember the songs of Rafi from your childhood about Ananki the spider, in which the monkey or the spider tricks the big bad guys, the elephant, the lion, all the bad guys get tricked because they're stupider. And the little guy uh, is always able to signify on them, to trick them, to lie to them without their realizing what's going on. And this way of talking about signifying is very much in the tradition of African American folklore and is, and, and, and is first comes to public consciousness uh, in a song by the scat singer Oscar Brown Jr., written by Oscar Brown Jr., called The Signifying Monkey. If I could sing, I'd sing it to you. Uh, fortunately, I can't sing, uh, but you can. It, it, it became extremely popular and was picked up by various instrumental jazz groups uh, and, was, and, and, and was a staple uh, in the jazz tradition of the uh, 50s and 60s. Uh, in any case, uh, Oscar Brown Jr.'s notion of the signifying monkey uh, is where Gates takes his essay's title from. Uh, and which is where uh, also um, uh, he gets this idea of uh, taking somebody else's discourse out of its context uh, and insisting on bending it into an African-American context, in other words, a context which is one's own and not just the context one is given. Now, uh, the other example of signifying on uh, that Gates gives is the culminating example of, uh, of, of uh, the color purple uh, and the conversation about getting the men, getting the man out of your eye, uh, which uh, is a way of taking back a, a problem that exists even within the African-American tradition. As Gates has been pointing out, Wheatley and later Rebecca Cox, uh, or rather Rebecca Jackson, um, take their models uh, of education and self-development from white male figures who have taught them how to read. And in each case, of course, this is pernicious because the existence of the white male figure is, um, is uh, very much still in, the, in your eye. You've got to get the man out of your eye, at least according to the dialogue Gates quotes from The Color Purple. Well, the interesting thing there is that in a way the issue of feminist criticism comes back to haunt Gates's argument because plainly Shug doesn't just mean the white man when she says the man. A big issue in The Color Purple, of course, is the emergence of a possible feminism uh, from uh, social constructions that aren't just defined by race. So that when Gates says, you know, the man, which all of us recognize uh, as shorthand for the white man, uh, can be signified on by an African American tradition making it a term of opprobrium, right, get the man out of your eye, at the same time, it can be signified on by the feminist tradition, <laughs> making it a term of opprobrium, not in a completely different way, but in an overlapping and partially different way. Uh, and Gates, in emphasizing the one as opposed to the other, is perhaps tilting again uh, toward a certain imbalance. 
Now, finally, I want to take up uh, the example, uh, the most controversial example in his essay, one uh, which is a source of outrage for most readers, uh, at the bottom of page uh, 1893 in the left-hand column. He's been talking about the new, he's been talking about the new agrarian moment. Uh, out of which there emerged a number of figures associated with the new criticism, uh, including Robert Penn Warren, who very early on repudiated the new agrarians uh, and became um, uh, a politically progressive figure in his own writing. You've, many of you have probably read All the King's Men, uh, certainly in his poetry as well, but who was uh, an avatar, a central figure in the, in the development of the thinking of the new criticism, which uh, we have briefly studied. Now, Warren wrote a poem called Pondy Woods, which uh, is quoted completely out of context by Sterling Brown. Uh, and unfairly out of context uh, in the passage, which I'm not going to read because I don't think I have the right to speak the N-word, uh, and so uh, I'll just have you look at it. Um, but then, and, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, and then uh, uh, the Sterling Brown's response uh, is also recorded there uh, for you. Well, the problem is this, for this, from the standpoint of anybody who's actually read the poem, but remember, in some ways it's a problem raised by a new critical perspective, and I'll, show, and I'll explain uh, what I mean in a minute. That expression is spoken by a buzzard or vulture from, I forget whether it's Tennessee or Kentucky, the episode takes place in northern Louisiana. Uh, and the buzzard is sitting expectantly on a tree waiting for a fugitive slave who has been chased into the swamp by his white pursuers to die. And the vulture is sitting there, well if it could it would be rubbing its hands with glee, waiting for this to take place. And it's the vulture that says it in the poem. Nothing to do, in other words, as we say, with the author of the poem, Warren, who is writing a completely sympathetic evocation of what it's like to be a fugitive slave in this state of terrible and overwhelmed panic. And so it seems completely unfair, and it is, I think, unfair as Sterling Brown took it up and as Gates then perpetuates the idea in his own reference. The one thing I would add, however, is that it's a new critical idea that we invoke to say that it's unfair. It's the new criticism of which Robert, in which Robert War, Penn Warren was a participant that tells us we shouldn't confuse speakers in poems with authors. In other words, an author is someone, according to the new criticism, who's dispassionate and who introduces dramatic voices, even in lyric poems, voices with which we are merely confusing ourselves uh, uh, if we associate them uh, with, uh, with an author. Now this is uh, something that we just take for granted when we read poems. All poems for us are, to some degree, dramatic monologues on the model of Browning and others uh, in the 19th century. We read them that way now. But it is, as I say, a new critical idea, and it comes back to the question, who has the right to use the N-word? It's a 
frequently, it's a frequent sort of term used on the street, as you know, in African American culture, used almost with a certain fondness uh, as a form of mutual greeting. But at the same time, it is a term that continues rigorously to be rejected as available to anyone other than someone who belongs within this community. And so that issue lingers. It's an issue that Warren, because of course he wrote long before uh, this sort of controversy began to arise around the word, uh, the controversy really boiled over precisely at the time of the banning of Huckleberry Finn from public schools, uh, uh, and so uh, there's a kind of innocence perhaps uh, in Warren's use of the word, but nevertheless uh, in the critical tradition it's a question, who has the right to use it? And this gives rise, perhaps, to the suggestion of a certain insularity in the thinking of the new criticism. Take the, let, let, use any model you like, the model of the Freudian unconscious, the model of the political unconscious. In other words, we've been reading a lot in this course about our never quite saying what we mean to say of our never quite being fully in control of our discourse because it bubbles up from the unconscious. Right? Now if you take a model like this, even though it's a nasty buzzard from Kentucky that's saying what Gates quotes, nevertheless there is an author and it has bubbled up from the unconscious of that. Well what are you going to do with that? There's a kind of impasse there. We feel distinctly and vividly and even bitterly, because I love Warren, I love Pondy Woods, and I also am something of a new critic, so we feel a bitterness about the expropriation, the signifying on what Warren says in this fashion. But at the same time, we have entertained these ideas of a subliminal author, not an authority, but an author welling up from below. And if that's the case, if that's the case, then we have to worry a little bit about how an expression like that got into the poem afterwards, after all. Um, and so that too, I call it a lingering problem because it strikes me as one of those moments when probably would have been better if Gates uh, hadn't followed Sterling Brown, uh, one of those moments when there is a kind of uh, overkill in the zeal of argumentation, uh, but which at the same time we can't absolutely dismiss out of hand for the variety of reasons that I've mentioned. Okay, I'll leave it like at there, and we'll return to many of these issues in a new vocabulary and in new forms when we read uh, the examples of post-colonial criticism on Thursday that you've been assigned.